Hello and welcome to The Growth Business. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and this is my annual best of episode. I always love this one because it's an opportunity to reflect on the year and pick out some of the key developments. And there are some big business themes emerging. It's never been more important to take the environmental crisis seriously, while also taking care of staff and prioritizing mental health. Like it or not, business culture matters. During the pandemic, it was clear what a business did and didn't stand for by the way it treated its customers and staff. And if that needed to change, then this was the year to start sorting it. It's also been a big moment for business technology. And while there's undoubtedly hype, and we're going to touch on that, there are also some really cool things coming. Smart new ways of getting the business outcomes that we want. So let's get going. This year, David Dame, Head of Accessibility for Microsoft, was one of my favourite guests. His passion for leadership was only matched by his passion for improving lives through equal access to technology. If you want to get the most out of people, the leader is more than a title. How do you act as if you are a leader? How do you support others as if you were a leader? And to me, that is the great big thing. And when the pandemic came, I always like to say it was really interesting because it gave everybody a sense to feel what it would be like to live with a disability. Because think about it, the world changed overnight. They could no longer go to the bank like they used to. They could no longer go to the grocery store like they used to. They had to change how they visited loved ones. So for the first time, they were forced to deal with all these mismatches, giving them empathy and really figuring out what kind of toolkit do they need to work and lead in a remote distributed culture. As David says, we were all getting used to working in a different way once again this year. And while it was fun to wear joggers to meetings, it was also quite stressful moving from Zoom to Teams and back again over and over again. Matt Champion is a mindfulness ambassador for SAP, and he gave me some advice on how to navigate the stresses. Some people don't want to have their cameras on. Maybe when we're taking a moment to have a breath, it's very optional to have your camera on. I think sometimes, especially in the past year or so, people have felt the need to always have the camera on and that can create uh, feelings of anxiety and pressure, um, especially as to your point, when you're asking someone to do something slightly different from what they're used to doing. So I think that that can help. And also making it optional, you know, using very invitational and optional language. You know, I invite you to take a few breaths before we start. So when, when you're leading it, not telling people what to do, but just inviting them and giving them the opportunity and the space to just arrive. Uh, sometimes we, and I'm sure everyone out there feels it, you know, even virtually, we are rushing from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting. And often our mind is actually in the last meeting, it's in the next meeting and it's not in this meeting. <laughs> Uh, and that's quite natural, the mind wandering from what's happened before or to what's going to happen next. That kind of rumination is a, is a part of the human condition. So actually, if you can just give people the space just to calm and become just a little bit more present, I think it, it helps. Companies who already had strongly bonded teams did well while working apart. 
but for others it was a struggle as we navigated business change. Kirsty Bashforth is the author of A Guide to Company Culture and she gave me some pointers on how to get your people engaged with creating change. Massive group in the middle, I call the sort of silent majority, who will follow if they believe and trust and see, but won't jump in. And, and so often, I think, we, we focus too much on the people who are resistant and not enough on the silent majority in the middle. Because if you get the silent majority in the middle, following the people who are wanting to change anyway, you've got sort of two thirds of the organization. And um, so that's a first principle. Yes, there are always people who resist, but don't only focus on them. Focus on the people who aren't saying anything because they're the ones who will really swing it because they, they're almost the most loyal followers once they do trust the data. I think I, I would always advise that if you're going to attempt to oversee change, go to where people are today. Don't tell people they're wrong. Recognize where they are, why they're there, history of why they might be there, and try and work out what's going to incentivize them to change. Because culture is all about habits and behaviors and assumptions and perceptions. It's not always easy to pick up and put in a box, but it's there for a reason. And they're often deeply ingrained habits. And to tell somebody your habits are wrong, you now need to do these habits. I've told you, therefore you will do it. Well, you know, that's not going to work. It's a bit like telling somebody, you know, lose weight. Okay, fine. How do you do that? Eat fewer calories. How do I do that? We'll just eat fewer. Well, it's not that simple. So it's it's really going to where people are and finding what makes them tick, what incentivizes them and makes it almost inevitable for them to do what you'd love them to do. And that's not just because you're persuading them. It could be processes or simple things that you know that they want and you've got to work out how to incentivize them. If I was to sum it up, behavioral economics, which sounds a bit theoretical, but those are a few pieces of advice I would give people. Meanwhile, as the COVID threat waxed and waned, the existential threat to the environment loomed larger. SAP's Tom Raftery has spent his life looking at the intersection of technology and environmental change. And as governments, including our own in the UK, start talking about taxing business on energy use and environmental damage, we talked about companies who are already well advanced with such policies. One of the guests I had on the podcast is a guy called Lucas Joppa. And Lucas is the chief environmental officer for Microsoft. And, you know, Microsoft are, you know, pretty much the gold standard in this space. Uh, And one of the things they did very early on back in 2012 was they introduced a carbon fee within the organization. And what that meant was if you were undertaking any project within Microsoft, you didn't just have to have a financial budget for it. You also had to report on the carbon emissions that that project would entail and pay for them. They had a carbon price for everything that happened within the company and everyone was liable for it. So no matter what you did, you had to find out what the carbon price of doing it was and you had to pay that carbon price. And the money from that carbon uh, fee went to the sustainability organization, which then allowed them to roll out more sustainable projects. So it was really, really clever, but they're taking that a step further now and they're pushing that out to their supply chain. So now if you are a supplier, 
to Microsoft, you are going to have to be able to calculate and report your carbon emissions. And Microsoft will make decisions on who to purchase from based on the carbon emissions associated with that. And this is not something that they're going to, you know, hit people over the head with with a hammer. They're going to work with their supply chain to help them figure out how best to report their emissions. So they want to bring their supply chain with them rather than having it be a, a battle between them. With technology in mind, this was the year when many businesses decided to take a big step up the digital maturity curve. Those with disparate processes and siloed data wanted to get connected, ERP was on the agenda, and those with even bigger digital plans started to look at making them real. Whichever you were, InCloud's Jonathan Phillips had some advice for you. Look, the way I see it, and you know me, a bit of an eternal optimist, you know, not just because of, of COVID and the strange kind of global situation we're in. Any time, if the business needs it, is a good time to start on an ERP project. But especially with the current scenario around a lot of people remote working, um, you know, offices and businesses questioning on whether they'll ever be back on site full time again. There's been an, a, a kind of widespread mindset switch of businesses to say that actually in the past where we've needed people on site using IT and tech we no longer need them on site and they should all work remotely and businesses have adapted and you see the amazing things that people have done to transform their businesses from you know selling one line of products or services to switching to do something different to react around the pandemic conditions the lockdown world and businesses have made new functions new processes and so I suppose it's as good a time as any for a rethink you know are the current practices in your business working for you or has your business moved to a place where perhaps some new functions or some new ways of thinking or the remote working scenario has kind of led you to, to a point where perhaps the, the on-site, on-premise ERP isn't working for you anymore? And do we need to do something new? And, and I, would, you know, I would always encourage someone, you know, especially if you're one of those businesses that has reacted during lockdown uh, and changed uh, the way you're doing things, some of the approach to market that you've got. Um, is the ERP or the systems that you had before, does that now suit where you're at right now? And if it doesn't, you know, get going on an ERP project. Think about what you can do, not just to back up the business, but to help drive it down its new direction. Technology as a driver of change has become a familiar theme this year. Sometimes it's called digital transformation and the idea is a powerful one. But as an industry, has it become so overused as to become meaningless? I put this to John Reed, the forthright founder of online customer champions Diginomica. Vendors have had a vested interest in pushing this topic because when you buy into transformation, you're probably going to buy some software. So uh, I'm always kind of asking customers, what does this word mean to you? And is it real to you? Look, they don't always use that word. But I think the one thing that is pretty much getting to become universal at this point is this notion that especially in pandemic circumstances, that that we've been so thoroughly challenged by economic conditions that we do have to have a response. And the response ideally should put us in a better competitive position, but also, uh, you know, in the ideal world, we'll, we'll provide a better place for people to work and a, a better way to serve customers. And, and, and by the way, a more effective supply chain uh, in a world that where that's not an easy thing to deliver anymore. And so in my mind, like when you talk about transformation, it should be a customer driven process that is really based on all those things, people, culture, technology, 
process. And, you know, when we try to tackle that topic of digitonomics, we try to tackle all of that. John Reed has made a name for himself calling out hype. So I couldn't resist asking him what the most hype technology was right now. I mean, where do you, where do you begin? I, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this and I realized like I could probably write a whole article around um, the different kinds of hype. I mean, in general, I, I'm very wary of, of tech hype. Uh, I'm wary of a certain kind of techno optimism of kind of like, oh, this is the magic tech that's going to solve all of our problems. A lot of it is window washing on stuff that's been around for a long time anyhow. Um, but but in general, I think what I'm ultimately pushing back against is this idea behind techno optimism is this idea that 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 progress is almost inevitable, like that good things kind of just happen because of tech, technological innovation. Whereas I believe that if we, we're actually going to have really important progress in this world on multiple fronts, we have to work at it every single day. And I don't think technology is going to come solve that. I mean, you know, I mean, look, look at look at how incredible these vaccines were for for covid and what an amazing technological achievement that was and yet a, a much simpler problem vaccine passports by by comparison a simpler problem is hung up why is it hung up because it's only simpler from a technical reason it's not simpler from a cultural political economic and international reason and so that's just to me an example of like why we have to be careful about idealizing technology so with john's warnings ringing in our ears what can customers look forward to a genuine leap forward and not just a window-washed rerun of the past? I spoke to Chris Gabriel, Chief Strategy Officer at Sapphire Systems, who has high hopes for a digital future, which goes far beyond back-office ERP. I think there's three things that really have defined the last 10 years. One is democratisation of technology. We've all got it in our hands and our homes and and all those kind of good things. Secondly, personalisation through the use of data and and, and learning and, and machine learning and that. And that's going to create some really interesting personalized stuff over the next 10 years. Things like personalized medicines are coming on. Maybe, you know, and all of that's going to be delivered by automation because the potential of doing this stuff is amazing, but there aren't enough humans to do it all. So, you, so we, we need automation to, to augment what we do. So it's always deja vu all over again. The question is, can we harness it? Can we make something positive of it? And can we use it and create a great economy, but also an interesting society at the same time? So there we have it a year in which the environment became a huge part of the business conversation, in which we started to see the possibilities of automation in everyday business life, and in which our mental health became as important as our physical health. I want to give the last word to David Dame, because he makes a key point. When we start to automate away the boring routine work and leave only the valuable, intelligent human tasks we will need to recognise that there's a human price to pay in stress and mental fatigue. Whatever advances technology brings, the human dimension must always remain top of our list. I think now we've come to realise humans have a certain threshold and boundary and we got to be mindful for it because now we're in a knowledge economy where, okay, if Dave can't do it, We'll get Mikey to come in. We'll get Michelle to come in. Because now we're knowledge workers where we have expertise. Just getting more bodies doesn't help the problem. So when you can't get multiple bodies to do repetitive work, you put more pressure and strain and dependency on that individual person. So if we don't start caring about the people, and if you think about the workplaces you've worked in, 
When you've had teams and people that care about you, you do your best work, don't you? David Dane, rounding up our look at the year. Thank you for listening to The Growth Business. I'll be back in the new year with another episode. So do tell your friends. Bye for now.